So as you're opening up your Bibles, turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians comes right after uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So if you have a hard time finding it, it's right there after 1st and 2nd Corinthians. This is the the letter uh, of the Apostle Paul, one of his earliest letters, maybe not his earliest one, but one of his earliest letters. And he's writing to a church or a group of churches in a region called Galatia, hence the name. And he is uh, writing to them. And actually, if you could give you a little bit of scope of the entire book, he's writing to them uh, because they have been tempted and are being tempted to kind of walk away from the truth that we are justified, we're declared righteous by God through faith alone and not by works of the law. There was a group of, uh, after Paul had kind of planted this church, there were a group of people who came in and said, you received Jesus, uh, the Jewish, uh, Jewish people who came in and said, you received Jesus, that is wonderful, but now you need to kind of go the rest of the way and kind of follow the works of the law. Paul was writing vehemently against, uh, against that. And that's the context or backdrop of the whole letter. But at the end of the letter, um, and as part of his argument, he's talking about how it is that, um, that we are to live as Christians and that we do so uh, not by obedience to some the, the Old Testament external law, but that we do it because we follow the Spirit. And so that's uh, where we are today. We're in our series on holiness. And so our passage is going to be Galatians Chapter five. So, uh, as I said, we're series on holiness. This is being set apart to God. Um, it's kind of the term that's used for uh, this and sanctification for the the growth that we are to have as Christians in our life. The the the, uh, the way that our life conforms to the position that we are before God because of the work of Christ. How our life moves into conformity with that. And so, uh, with that. We will uh, begin with our scripture passage or reading in Galatians chapter 5. And our reading will be verses 16 through 26. And Paul writes. But I say. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things... There is no law. And those who who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the reading of God's word. And as we've gone along uh, in our series, well, let, let's, let's pray first before I continue. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we thank you that you uh, have inspired these very words that Paul has written to the Galatians. And we thank you for the truth that it conveys about the reality of, of a battle and a war that's raging in the life of, of, of all uh, persons, but is true for us. That the two opposing um, ways in which we can live. God, we pray that as you have, uh, you have spoken through the reading of, of your word, that, uh, that you would continue to guide us in our thoughts and our reflections as we unpack a little of what Paul has said here. So, God, we ask your assistance by your spirit to do so, knowing that we depend on you and trust in you to give us understanding and insight, as well as for these truths to, to penetrate into our hearts and to challenge and to convict and to encourage and exhort. And so we ask that you do that through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we're in a series on sanctification, and we've looked at uh, a little bit, and we'll be exploring this a little bit more today, the interplay between the work that God does and the work that we do. Sanctification is, unlike justification, where justification is purely the work of God, sanctification likewise is purely the work of God, and yet there's an obligation that is upon all Christians, commands given to us to live in conformity with that. We have to, uh, we have to and are obligated to obey and to grow and to work and to live out the justification that we have. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at how it is that we do that. And actually, here's the two questions for us. This is our basic two-point outline for today to guide us along in our time. Two questions that we'll be asking and hoping to have the text answer for us. First one is, what does walk or live by the Spirit mean? We encountered that in the very first verse. It's the, the only command in this section these passages, um, this paragraphs that we read. Walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Some of your translations might have to, to live by the Spirit. We'll get to the distinction between those two uh, as we go. And the second question that we're going to ask is, how do we walk or live by the Spirit? So the first one, what do we, uh, what does walk or live by the Spirit mean? Well, a couple of things I want us to observe about this, this passage that, to help us before we get to the how. And the first one is this. We have to recognize there's a, an absolute clash between what Paul calls the flesh and the Spirit. An absolute clash between the flesh and the Spirit. These are diametrically opposed things. What is the, the flesh? Notice we see this, this, uh, um, this contrast set apart for us here in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh 
are against the Spirit, right? He had just told us to walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, they, for these are opposed to each other. Diametrically opposed things. What is the flesh here? Uh, we've, we've encountered this word before. Flesh is it's a term for actually skin or muscles or bones. Sometimes it's referred to an entire body. It's the term for that. But it's used metaphorically here for, as Paul describes, um, the part of our human nature as it is set against God and all that God is for. So Paul uh, is referring to, he's taking this kind of imagery of flesh and bones in our bodies, and he's saying, this is the metaphor of our sin nature. As a matter of fact, that's how some translations will just translate this word in these passages. Sin nature. You will not gratify the desires of your sin nature here. So this is what uh, Paul is referring to here on this one side of these diametrically opposed things. The sin nature. What's on the other side? Well, the spirit. Now, we know that this in the larger context, this is referring to the Holy Spirit. First question is, what is the flesh? This one is not what is the spirit, but who is the spirit? Because this is the Holy Spirit. This is a person. This is the third person of the Trinity. First person being God, the father, second person being God, the son, Jesus Christ, and the third person being the uh, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Can't get into an entire summary of the doctrine of the, the Holy Spirit here, but Jesus had promised his disciples that he when he left, this was even before his crucifixion, after he was crucified, dead, buried and resurrected, he was going to leave and he needed to leave. Because if he didn't leave, he wouldn't be able to send the counselor to you, to us. So you have the third person of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus to come and to dwell within believers. We see the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit is coming uh, on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We're familiar with this story. Flames of fire and people are able to speak in other languages and that the Holy Spirit the promised one that Jesus spoke of is now present. And he dwells inside of believers and is a deposit and a guarantee until Christ returns. And that the Holy Spirit is also the power that works the change in us. The indwelling Holy Spirit is, think about this, it's actually God working in you. And so here you have this, the Trinity in action. Else, you know, if you notice this, we talk about this quite frequently, uh, and we our prayers are usually take this kind of shape, this trinitarian shape, we, to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And the work of all three persons of the Trinity in the plan of salvation in our and the gospel is so crucial. You have God the Father kind of planning redemption, does not leave those who rebel against him on their own. He actually plans a course of redemption to bring people back to him. And he, he doesn't do this from afar. He doesn't just kind of wave a wand. He has to uh, be just in pun punishing the sin and rebellion against him. But he needs to redeem. And so how does he 
redeem and justify and yet be just at the same time. This is where the second person of the Trinity comes in. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who lives a perfect life and then dies a death on our behalf to take our sins for us. To offer us forgiveness and then to credit that righteous, his righteous life to us. To make us right before God. So you have God the Father and God the Son working together in this plan to redeem and to save. Okay? It's not as is so uh, often um, said and some people kind of criticize this, this kind of view that Jesus takes upon the wrath of God for us in our place and kind of mocks that as being... God who wants to punish and that Jesus wants to save and they have to kind of work out a deal and negotiate. That's not, that's not how it works. This is a plan that the two have worked together from before the foundation of the world. But then how does that uh, justification, we're justified by, uh, by Christ and his cross and his blood that was shed for us, but how does now Christ's righteousness work in us practically does he leave us on our own to do that no this is where the third person comes in so it's the indwelling holy spirit of god that is the power to enable us to to work and to accomplish christ accomplished the salvation the holy spirit is now applying it to our lives and so here you have the flesh and Holy Spirit. These are two diametrically opposed things. They're total opposite ends of the spectrum. It's an absolute antithesis. And they're completely incompatible. Now, a couple of things I would like us to, to focus before we move it on. What Paul goes on to explain here, let me, in case you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, when I'm referring to the flesh or the sin nature, let me show you some of its works. Some of the activity of the flesh. We see this in verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he lists 15. And it's not. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list. Even though it might. Uh, exhaustive list. This, even though it might feel like it. Because he ends in verse 21. With, and things like these. So it's 15 plus things. But let's look at some of the 15 that he mentions here. Sexual immorality. This is any kind of illegitimate sexual intercourse outside of the covenant bond of one man and one woman in marriage. You have impurity. This is uh, uncleanness or lewdness. The, the, the literal term is used for like dirt or refuse. And so it's used metaphorically here for like a state of kind of the moral corruption that comes. Sensuality. Other ways to kind of translate this is licentiousness, lasciviousness. I, I totally butchered that. Um, but here's what one, here's what the, the Greek uh, lexicon says. It's a lack of self-restraint conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. It's self-abandonment or uh, depravity, as one translation puts it. Another one says debauchery, the NIV does. And you have idolatry, right? The the replacing of the one true God with other smaller gods to which we give our loyalty and devotion and attention. Sorcery. This is interesting. The, the Greek word here is pharmakeia. 
And so it's it, it's the the use of the term of somebody who mixes drugs, right, for pharmacy. And so it was kind of the connection of the mixing of drugs and um, and used for like sorcery or magic or enchantment or to put spells on people. Um, sorcery, enmity. We could go on into details of each one of these. I, I thought it better, thought it best to not do a 15-week series on each one of these, right? A sermon on each one. That would have thinned out the crowd pretty good. Um, but sorcery, enmity. I, I think some of us might get through the verse 19 and we're like, okay, I'm good here. Idolatry, maybe, ooh. But it's enmity, strife, jealousy. These we don't need to go to the Greek lexicon for. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. This is what the flesh-directed life looks like. It's a life dominated and controlled by sin. That's the works of the flesh. Paul goes on to kind of, again, to highlight the contrast here. Again, he goes, now I want to go and look at the fruit of the Spirit. In verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The last bit there is dealing with the main issue he's dealing with with these other people who are saying, yes, it's good that you accepted Jesus. Now you need to go and follow all of the law. And Paul is saying, as part of his argument, no, you don't, because we now have the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit produces in a believer's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are fruit. Notice how the first part, it says, the works of the flesh are these things. Paul doesn't say, the works of the Spirit are these. He says, the fruit of the Spirit are these. And as one of my Greek professors used to constantly stress before us, it's fruit singular, not fruits. It's fruit singular, meaning kind of look at this as a, as a whole. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And I think Paul here is, is really drawing on an imagery that's from the teaching of our Lord. That Jesus himself had said in John chapter 15, when he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's the first thing we need to see, the, the, the absolute clash between flesh and spirit. Here's the second point uh, we should keep in mind. Uh, the one who walks in the flesh is not a Christian. 
The one who refuses to walk in the spirit is not a Christian. This. Hopefully you may feel the shock of that. And that's, I think, Paul's intent. Because after listing off these these things like the work of the flesh in verses 19 through 21, Paul ends with this in verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A life dominated by the flesh. Committed to the works of the flesh. Paul is giving them this warning. Those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not the only place that Paul says this to. Um, we, again, we want to interpret scripture by scripture. And you might be saying, man, Aaron, that sounds really harsh. Paul says this elsewhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to keep this in your note. He says a very similar thing and a very similar argument to the, to the church at Colossae. He says these words. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he gives another list. It's very reminiscent of this one. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor nor swindlers. Neither will inherit the kingdom of God. He says it. He says it there twice in that passage. He says it once in in Galatians. So this is a very, um, it's very harsh. It's a very sobering thing for us to think about. The one who walks in the flesh is uh, not a Christian. This highlights the a very important thing, I think, that we, um, that I think sometimes tends to be forgotten. Um, I think a lot, uh, a lot of times we think that in order for a person to be saved, they need to have the, the right theology. And I would say, yes. I mean, if you get some, uh, many of those doctrines wrong that pertain to how it is that you are saved, then it does really become, it becomes a salvation issue, right? But what is often not emphasized frequently is the stress that the New Testament puts on what genuine faith does. And genuine faith will produce the fruit of good works, will produce the fruit of the spirit in a believer's life. And it doesn't mean perfection, right? So we all stumble and fall in many ways. We will never be sanctified fully in this life. The New Testament, I think, has made that clear. We've seen that before. But Paul does make this stress here and elsewhere that your life has to match up with your standing. And it needs to increasingly be that way. Kind of a way of illustrating that this week in much much debate and... Things have happened this week about what happened in California in the synagogue near Escondido, California, right? Um, where a gunman had entered into a synagogue and started shooting and opened fire 
and killed one person, injured several others, uh, shot the rabbi of the church who had to have his finger amputated. I'm sure you probably have seen uh, this in the news. What came out later was the, in his manifesto, um, he spelled out some things that many people noticed were actually very orthodox Christian doctrines that we would agree with. He actually attended uh, an orthodox Presbyterian church. This would be on the conservative side. His father was an elder there. The church clearly denounced this. They said, we don't teach any of the stuff and advocate any of the other stuff that he taught in or talked about in his manifesto at all. And so I can imagine the grief and the, the pain that would have been for that entire congregation to have a member of their congregation go out and do such a horrendous act. But as people noticed, if you look at his theology, he got the theology largely right. Now, some have taken that as an incident to kind of challenge doctrine. You know, so things like this quote, if he had not, if he had the right doctrine and did these things, we need to take a look at our doctrine, meaning so like somehow the teaching or the doctrine was was in error. I think it's appropriate for us to kind of ask ourselves those questions and evaluate those questions. But I think that some of the people who have said that and pastors who have said that that's pastorally irresponsible. And that's just an improper thinking about the relationship between doctrine and practice. You can have the right doctrine and it might not manifest itself in right practice. Okay, doesn't but wrong practice doesn't necessarily mean that your your doctrine, your right doctrine is wrong and needs to be questioned. Okay, you can you can have right doctrine and yet have wrong living. But what Paul's point is, uh, meaning what I mean is you can see that happening in the world. You could have some people who will who will assent to all of the proper doctrines or creeds and yet go and commit heinous things. Paul would say that's not in agreement. Paul would say it's not enough to have the, the right doctrine. Your life needs to match it. Do you not know that if you, even if you've accepted Christ and assent to all of these truths and yet go and live unrighteously and murder and maim and kill, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not saying that we're saved by works. Not at all. It's just saying that true faith will manifest itself in our lives. Just so I'm, I'm clear on that. Paul is advocating here that we need to not only have our thinking right and our doctrine right. We need to, uh, as part of that and the natural logical consequence to that, we need to walk according to the spirit. And that's the third point. Those who walk according to the flesh do not inherit the kingdom of God. The third one is the Christian is commanded then to walk according to the spirit. And this is the command in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Walk here. It's the word literally for walk. And it's used metaphorically for, for how you conduct your entire life. How you live in your, in your world. Or like looking at life as kind of like one course that you, that you go down. 
Um, some will use the phrase like my, my journey or things like that. In this sense, it's, that's not a, a weird or unusual way of describing it. Because that's, that's a biblical term here of walk. And notice it kind of bookends the section here. Verse 16, it says, Paul says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 25, he says, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Different uh, term. It's not the exact same term as walk there. It's a different one, but it's uh, stay according to the rule or the the conduct that is required that we live in conformity with the spirit. So I'd say it this way. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then he is the rule and must be the rule and the framework and the standard for all aspects of our lives. So it's an important difference that we need to keep in mind. Uh, in <clears throat> looking at what, what does this mean? You know, commanded to, to walk in step with the spirit. Notice, notice, by the way, as we, we said before, it's not the works of the spirit. It was the works of the flesh. He's saying this is the fruit of the spirit, but we walk in the spirit. We walk with the spirit and according to the spirit. And when we do, though, the spirit then produces the fruit in us. And so here's um, here's how we would do that. How many of you have wondered that for some time? How do I walk or live according to the spirit? Or even in some of the passages like Paul writes to the Ephesians, be filled with the spirit. Well, what does that look like? Um, as I was working on, uh, on this this last week and kind of refreshing myself and trying to um, remind myself of these things, I, I came across something I'd read years ago. And I think I have shared this before, probably years ago. And I found this from uh, from John Piper. And I think it's it's too helpful to not share with you almost exactly what he says. And so he gives us kind of a five steps. It's not formulaic. It's not a mechanical kind of thing, but just five things that we could do to to assist us in walking by the spirit that I think are very, very helpful. First one, he says is to acknowledge to acknowledge the truth that we kind of got to a little bit earlier and that is acknowledge that we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to do good things acknowledge that we are unable by ourselves to produce fruit the fruit of the spirit That's the first first step. He gives a couple of verses here that I think are uh, illustrative of what he's talking about. Paul says these words to the Romans. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. It's interesting, he says that in Romans chapter 7, and then in Romans 8, he makes basically the same argument that he makes here on walking according to the Spirit. But it begins, first of all, with acknowledging that you can't do it. And we even saw that uh, earlier with Jesus when he was talking about 
if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, some of you might go, well, wait, one of those Jesus ones, the Holy Spirit. Obviously, he's talking about the one whole triune God here, right? So acknowledge that on our own, we do not have any ability to produce the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the first one. Second one, then pray. And by this, I mean you pray to God and you claim the promise that God has given that he will give you his spirit and he will produce that fruit in you. In Ezekiel, the Lord says, uh, Ezekiel 36, and he's making this promise about what will happen in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, God makes this promise. I will put my spirit within you. Okay, and you, you by extension here is his people. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know, see, walking in the statutes and obeying God's rules comes because God has promised. He will say, I'll give you my spirit that will enable you to do that. The writer of Hebrews in his closing benediction says these words now and it's again this is this is basically a prayer is appeal it's a benediction for them now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So here you have a scriptural prayer, a benediction, that God would equip us to do everything to do what is pleasing to him. So pray that. I imagine many of us are looking at this list of vices and we go, I don't want that. We're looking at this works of the flesh and we go, I don't want that. Paul says, I didn't want this either. But my flesh wants to. Like, I don't want to, but my flesh wants to. You're probably looking at that. And then you're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. You say, I want that. It's helpful to go back a step and say, okay, now let me go and get it. Like, let me just start working on being loving. Let me start working on being patient. You ever tried to work on your own at being patient? How many times has that backfired magnificently? Right. This is helpful for us to go, Okay, that's good to want that. You need to go back a little bit and acknowledge I can't. I can't. Nothing good dwells within me to to do this. And then to pray, God, you've promised your people that you would pour out your spirit and put your spirit in us to make us to walk according to your statutes and to obey your rules. So, God. I ask you to do that. So acknowledge and pray and then trust. Now is when you trust. You believe that that's true and you walk according to it. And then fourth, you act. Okay. How many of us action lists to do, right? Notice that action list is fourth. Acknowledge you can't. Claim God's promises that he will. Trust that he will. 
and now you act. Paul says a couple of times, and I think these are very great passages uh, in this regard. 1 Corinthians 15. And here he's talking about his ministry. Um, uh, So it's not like good works of fruit in particular, but the same principle applies. But by the grace of God, I am that what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul worked. He had an action plan. And then he says this, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Isn't that awesome? I worked harder than all of them, but yet it was the grace of God that was working in, in me. Earlier in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Philippians chapter 12, verses, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, illustrates this. We work and it's God working. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Like work out our salvation, work out our salvation. And then he says, for or because it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think that's great, helpful advice, five-step advice for us to live and walk by the Spirit. Acknowledge that we can't. Pray to God, claiming the promises that He will. Believe it, act on it, and then lastly, to thank Him for it when you do. When you have the fruit of the Spirit manifesting in your life, Then pause and give thanks and start that process over again. Say, God, thank you. Uh, I was able to be loving in a situation that required a kind of love that uh, is not human. Right, because when we think about, again, this, these fruit, we need to look and go, these are, these are not just kind of human attributes that we would see. These are definitely on a divine plane. We love because God first loved us. And when we recognize that God first loved us by what he's done in Christ, guess what? Then we, it'll cause us to love in sacrificial ways that would have been hard to even dream of or imagine was reminded of this story again yesterday of a famous author who uh, is a believer and who had a very difficult and troubled marriage and uh, her husband, they ended up separating and ended up divorcing. And he was guilty of a lot of things that would fit works of the flesh. And yet he repented of those things and they were actually reconciled and remarried. And you would say, how, do, how does that happen? That, that's a love, that's not a love that you would see on a human plane. 
That's fruit of the Spirit kind of love. You could go down through all of these. Joy. This is not happiness. This is a deep-seated joy. Peace, patience, kindness. You get the idea. So friends, I make this appeal to you today. And I just relay Paul's appeal to us all. A challenge for us all. And Paul verse 16 says, Walk by the Spirit. Acknowledge that you can. Pray. Trust. Believe. Act. And then thank. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have arranged this salvation in such a way with each of the persons of the Trinity so as to bring us back to you. We're grateful for your love. We thank you for the work of Christ. And we were grateful as well for the indwelling presence of the Spirit in us. God, we ask that um, you would cause us and stimulate us by your Spirit to turn more in faith to him. God, we want to heed the commands to follow, to follow you, to work out our salvation. But we know that it is you working in us. Help us to do. Help us to live and to walk in a way that honors you. In this we pray, in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, we'll stand for our closing uh, benediction this morning. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.